information in this podcast is meant for the education of clinicians in rehabilitation. This is not meant for personal medical diagnosis and treatment, and individuals should always consult an appropriate medical practitioner. Hello and welcome to Vestibular Special Interest Group podcast presented to you by Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. Vestibular rehabilitation is recognized as a valid method to treat individuals with vestibular disorders. However, there is high variability in vestibular rehab practice. Our guests today are not only vestibular rehab specialists, but also renowned academicians in the field. Dr. Anne Galgone, an Associate Professor of Physical Therapy at St. Joseph's University, Philadelphia, and Dr. Andrew Littman, Associate Professor of Physical Therapy at Regis University in Denver, Colorado, join me today to discuss their recent survey study on a survey of entry-level physical therapy education content for vestibular rehabilitation. Welcome both. And um, it's such a pleasure to have you both on the show to share your um, survey with us, um, especially for um, new faculty and senior faculty. Um, I believe it was a, um, a study that was done by multiple authors, and and you are you are the chief um, author for the study, correct? Yes, I was. So I, um, Holly Roberts, uh, along with Andrew Littman, Lisa Gillig, Lisa Dransfield, Charles Plishka, Dine Grisley, um yes. were all authors. Yes. Um, so welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So what brought about this whole study for, for the group? Well, I probably was the instigator. <laughs> um, so the, uh, the vestibular special interest group I've been pretty active in for many, many years. And uh, in 2003, we, had, we wanted to kind of talk about what would be standard for entry-level physical therapy. And we had done a Kind of like a round table at CSM and a, a group of people that were just interested in it kind of came up with the standards. I did a consensus kind of thing and they just said, these are the things that entry-level physical therapists should know. So that was in 2003. So when I became the chair of the vestibular SIG, I don't know, I think it was like 2011 or something like that. I was like, oh, that, that document is posted on our website. It's still there. Um, we were really just kind of like, we have to do a better job at defining this. And part of it was that we were also looking at trying to promote specialization, vestibular specialization. So we kind of wanted to know the difference. Like what do, what do we expect a new grad to know? And how is that different than what a specialized physical therapist is? So it kind of sets the kind of the standard. Um, but so we decided to form a group to look at this. And our first idea was just to update what was on our website. But as the group got together, we realized, you know, that it, it took more than just a group of people that were interested in vestibular rehab to kind of set the standards. So that was the instigation of forming the task force force. And the task force essentially decided that we needed to study what was actually being taught first as our first strategy to understand what we would recommend. Um, for PT education. So that's where this study kind of evolved from. Um, how long did the study actually take to finally come into publication? 
<laughs> it took a while. So we we actually the first thing we did was we ran a pilot study in 2016, and then no, was that 16? 18, 2018. 2018, the very the January of 2018, right? And that pilot study was just um, we we sent out uh, to a variety of different schools in different regions, like 18 schools, and we got six respondents from that particular one, and then from that we we re reevaluated the the survey. So we actually completed the survey in the summer of 2018. So it did take us till a little bit of time to get that out to publication. And, um, and it came out in in uh, just recently in 2022. Right. Yeah, we submitted it. We, the first time we submitted it, I think, was in 2020. No, 2021. We submitted yeah, about March of 2021. And then, yeah, it, was... and then it came out the following year. So it took takes about a, it took about a year from when we submitted it to get published. The, the usual process of yeah, yeah, yeah. reviews. Yeah. Um, so what did the survey actually entail? Um, so the survey, and there was three parts to our survey. So the first part was just demographic information. We wanted to know about the programs, what kind of programs there were, how long were, how many hours, for example, that the the program was providing education on the civil rehab um, lab and lectures, uh, just the general characteristics of the institution, like is it a teaching institution, is it a research institution, um, the student body size, um, how long were the, was the PT program, just to give a general background. And then um, there was a content section that asked about specific content areas. So there was several sections like, um, you know, basic foundational knowledge, what vestibular disorders do the students know about? Um, and then it went into like tests and measures, intervention techniques, and then clinical decision-making. And then the last part was more of a kind of a gestalt answer, like, you know, when your students graduate, what level do you think they are? And I we kind of modeled the, the, uh, the terminology used in the CPI, the, the, the performance indicators they use in, in Edu clinical education to set our characteristics. Um, the way we asked the question was whether they expose students to this content, whether they assess them on the content cognitively or psychomotor. And then we asked them also for each content area to say, um, was, do you think that this is an essential part of PT education? Did I get that right, Andy? Is there anything else I forgot? <laughs> yeah, I think it just as a an overview of really the entire project, we've envisioned this as a uh, more of a, a three um, publication project, of which this is the first part. Um, it, so, in the first part that Zan was saying, we're trying to determine basically what's being taught uh, in the entry level DP programs right now. And so as part of that, we needed to look at both the depth and the breadth of the vestibular rehabilitation content that's being taught across the United States. Um, not only that, but we wanted to find out what was the, the perceptions of the physical therapy educators as to which content is essential for entry level practice. Um, and seeing, you know, are there any discrepancies you know, or any mismatch between what people perceive as, as um, important versus what's actually being taught that way? Because that, you know, partially that could be limited, say, by the number of hours that are available in, in the program. 
there. And then finally, uh, one of the bigger questions was the expected performance of the graduates. And so um, where do where do educators expect students to be when they uh, finish their clinical rotations and then enter as a autonomous practicing DPT? My, my, these are so detailed and very thoughtful questions. What was lacking in the literature when you did the review of literature? Um, was there any previous recommendations given or was any old surveys ever done in the past? Um, yeah. I, I know you mentioned that there was some old recommendations put on APTA. Uh, were they never put into practice and they were just out there? Um, so could you could you share with our audience what what did we have in in the past? And um, yeah, um, I'll take that first, and then if there's something else you think about. So uh, th there had been here or there um, different things that had been kind of put out there. Um, there was an international survey that was done as a committee of the Barony Society, which is the International Vestibular Research. They had done a survey where they surveyed, well, what phys vestibular physical therapists should know. It wasn't really entry level, but that we did use that um, kind of as a template for many of the areas that we asked content on. Um, there had been... Um, a study that had been done by a physician's group that had surveyed physical therapists and they had just said that they had quite a bit of different variability. Like we, we predicted variability because it had been shown that therapists had variable experiences in vestibular rehab. And this, that group was kind of just saying, you just have to know, you just have to know that not all therapists know enough about vestibular rehab. Yeah. And um, then in 2011, the APTA, uh, no, sorry, the ANPT at that time made a had a over global neuro um, entry level kind of recommendations. And in that they had a few areas where they included vestibular content. Um, so they had done a very large document, um, which is more was a consensus built document that they looked at and made recommendations on education for a neurologic component of curriculum. Um, and so those were the primary documents that we had Oh, the, the, the last one was that there were a few things that had been recommended for entry level in the, um, oh, what's the group that did the outcome measures? The, the vestibular edge. Yeah, the, ed the, the, the edge. The edge group. group. They had recommended entry level um, outcome, I mean, basically measures in vestibular rehabilitation. So we also had those to kind of work with. Right. And, and those... Um really didn't get into, it was really just the measures themselves uh, in terms of the level of appropriateness that each could be used, um, but it didn't get into uh, some of the other uh, skills. You know, when we look at knowledge, skills, and attitudes, didn't get into some of the other knowledge in terms of the critical thinking aspects, um, you know, history aspects, um, clinical examination findings, or, or even in, in treatment. And so th that document um, was very valuable for putting out what are the, the measures that would be appropriate to be used, um, but didn't get into the other aspects of practice. Right, and, and they only looked at it based on the validity, reliability, and psychometric properties of different tests to make the recommendations. That it wasn't, um, it wasn't based on, you know, our, this particular study was what is actually being taught. So um, there really was no evidence of what that is. I mean, in, you know, we, we only knew what kind of 
from these other studies a little bit about what people thought there should be. <laughs> so were there any challenges uh, when you developed your survey? I don't know, Andy, you want to take that one? <laughs> challenges? Hmm. Um, some of the challenges you know, with any survey is getting enough um, getting enough respondents, we'd send it out to at the, at the time 239 that we could have that we had information that we could direct uh, survey links with a request to. Uh, from that, we got 99 responses, so about 43 percent of uh, respondents um, actually came that way. Um, we tried to look at uh, some of the demographics of the program itself, so whether it's a primary research or primary teaching institution, you know, private or public um, as well. Um, I guess one of the challenges, and you know, it's something that we you know, would look at as a limitation in the current survey is that we don't have the demographics of the people that actually filled out the survey. So as part of the invitation, we, we invited, uh, well, we specified those that are teaching the content, but if not, then if you know the director of the program or the actual faculty member, which may, or, and, and in that case, we don't have that information. So that's, uh, I think, one of the things that made it a little bit harder to interpret that way. Um, and so with the follow-up study that we're currently working on, we're collecting all of that information. Uh, so we know both geographically, uh, the type of setting, their role within the setting, not only that, their um, level of comfort and, and self-perceived level of competence or expertise in the field. And so I think that will help us to answer a little more questions in the follow-up survey, which is actually now looking at, um, it's actually the second part of those, the, the three papers is what do the clinicians actually need? What do they perceive as necessary for students, or for really for new graduates to be able to come into the clinic and practice autonomously? Yeah. And so I think that would be probably the biggest uh, limitation is knowing really who filled out the survey. Was it the director who may not have um, information um, other than you know a syllabus or is it the actual person that was teaching the content? Yeah. Yeah, I think the last thing I, that we did have a little bit of problem with, and this is a problem with all survey, <laughs> is that we we really tried when we went from the pilot study down to the study that we did with the full um, invitation to all the schools um, to kind of narrow down the content so that the survey wasn't very long. <laughs> and it, it was a long survey. And so we did have definitely had people that started the survey, didn't complete. You know, if they put in their demographic information, but didn't do anything. So it, we had 99 people that completed the whole thing. Um, we definitely had uh, quite a few that started, but didn't finish that we couldn't include the data. So that was something we tried to be conscientious of, but because it's a broad survey of different content areas and we want to capture, you know, the demographic information, it ends up taking a little bit longer. <laughs> and I think that was, I think, is a, you know, it's, it's always disappointing when you, when you see that some of your surveys didn't get fully completed and then you're, you're, you're have variable number of answers in your um, content area. So. Um, do you think all the 200, it was 243 programs you had sent out. Did you actually look through all those programs to see if they're actually doing vestibular rehab or um, they were um, the top 200 programs in the country, and that's why you chose those. So um, um, there's so many new programs coming up each day, and everybody wants to add something new. And so what how, what made you decide these will be the programs we're going to send out? And how many were you expecting to, hoping that people would reply back to you? Mm -hmm. 
Oh, did you have a number in your mind that oh we just hope at least at least 50 people out of 200 would do it and that'll help us start get it started with this whole task um the huge task that you have all undertaken it's huge and it's so critical and important um like you mentioned because i think there's a being a clinical instructor in the past and now moving into academia um, I see both phases, um, how at the entry level, you want students to know something, but as a clinician, I would want to make them know more, but then um, the boards don't require a certain thing. This is my future question for you, but um, I, I like to ask you, like, how many did you actually expect and were hoping that at least let's see how many we get back? We actually sent it out to every program that was in existence at the time, uh, except for a couple of which, I and mean, there was no actual information on the website as to who, you know, the program director or, or emails that we could actually use. Um, but that was just a handful. Um, so we probably got, you know, 98% of the programs um, in the country at the time. Um, so I think it was 239 that, that we actually sent it out to. Um, uh, yeah, from, that got, from that, we got about 100, again, about 43%. Yeah, we based some of that, you know, we were, we were happy with the um, uh, 43%, getting about 100 programs. When we looked at other studies that in different areas, um, you know, such as uh, genetics, in, there was a um, study published on uh, context in genetics, uh, epigenetics um, in there. And other, you know, other types of programs and survey responses ranged from anywhere from about 20% to 100%. I think the average was about 57% uh, in terms of the response rate across these numerous studies, you know, across disciplines um, and across content areas. And so, you know, having 100 out of, you know, the 200, uh, at least we felt satisfied with that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so um, I, I was going to ask you about um, when you were looking at the programs, did you also search that these programs had vestibular program in them? Um, or it was just like, these are all PT programs, let's just send it out and let's just see who responds back. Okay. We really we really did want to have uh, perspectives from all the programs if we could. Um, so we did not look at what was offered. Um, the the survey provided demographics for I mean, I mean, characteristic kind of questions on like the number of hours that vestibular was taught, lecture hours, laboratory, lab hours, things like that. So we could get a sense um, from you know, the survey, what was being taught, but it's based on their report. The surveys were anonymous, so we couldn't really link back, you know, who answered what question each way. Do you, do you, Anyway, um, um, so I'm sure along with me and the audience, we want to know what is the depth and breadth, breadth of the vestibular rehab content being taught at the entry level DPD program. Uh, one of the things that struck us is the amount of variety, uh, just variation between programs. Uh, it, you know, to expand on your, your previous questions about you know whether we knew these uh, if these programs had vestibular rehab. Um, we were particularly struck by the difference in the number of hours of uh, content. And so whether it be vestibular content prior to the vestibular rehabilitation unit that they might get, um, the average there was about five and a half hours across programs. Um, when you look at the range, though, 
you know, the median was for the range was uh, a maximum of 30 down to a minimum of zero. It's the same when we looked at the number of vestibular rehabilitation lecture hours on average across the nation is about eight hours or so. Um, again, the range, the range from one hour to 48 hours of just lecture and then laboratory hours averaging six with the range being zero to 20. And so there are some schools out there that do not have any of the specific vestibular rehab content in their program. And there's some that have quite a bit, or at least how they interpret it as quite a bit. Because, you know, when I see 48 hours of lecture, I'm like, wow. But it could have been how they counted it up. You know, you can't really tell for sure. Now, with this massive variability, how did this challenge you with the data collection? Um, part of it was to uh, looking at to uh, interpret, was it different because of the program? You know, for example, if it's a large... A research program that has a teaching hospital associated with and may have you know, a number of clinicians, would they have different expectations or, or teach at a different level um, versus, you know, I mean, I'm at a small private teaching university. And um, even though you know, we have, we would be far above the, the, the averages and the numbers that we give just um, based on the background of our faculty um, that way. But we really did not find a big difference between um, large you know, research universities, small research, you know, large or small, you know, public, private, or teaching uh, intensive versus, um, you know, say, um, R1 yeah. universities. So, um, yeah, so it wasn't the program that actually seemed to dictate at this point. So that may, and again, so that was pushing us more towards thinking about the demographics then, which made it a little bit harder um, for the, the demographics of the individual respondents. Yeah, one, um, of the, yeah, one of the things that we were thinking about, and Andy and I had a discussion about, is when you go into the different content areas for like the depth and breadth, um, you know, there were a lot of areas that we had that, you know, the majority of the schools would say is essential. But if you tried to add up all that stuff, it would never have fit into some of those hours in some of the schools. So I, I do think that there could have been you know, perception that things are important, but then, um, you know, curriculums are always kind of overly stuffed and there's not enough room for stuff. And so many people probably felt like they couldn't teach because of how much hours they were allowed to teach. That's just my kind of feeling about it as an educator, <laughs> always want to be able to teach more. Um, so that was, that's an interesting thing. I, I thought, um, from the depth and breadth that people might thought that certain things were kind of essential, but maybe they weren't unable to teach it at um, the level that they wanted to. Yeah. I'm, I'm forgetting now, did you also have a question on, um, I know you collected the data either from the program chair or from the person who might be teaching uh, vestibular rehab, but did you also ask about the qualification in, in vestibular rehab for, for the faculty? Was that ever a question on the survey? No, we didn't ask that question. So that was a limitation. Uh, we don't know, we don't, from the way we asked the question, we don't know who filled out the survey and we don't know what the qualification is of the educator. Now, what were the chief findings in your study? So 
I'll, I can start. It's, there's a lot of findings. There's like multiple, multiple really long tables. <laughs> and if you go to the article, there's like digital content supplemental tables as well, because there was a lot of categories. Um, you know, and the, 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 we broke it up into areas. So things like foundational science and most of the areas of foundational science were rated um, as important. So that included things like, you know, anatomy, you know, anatomy of the central system, the influence of the, the similar system on the postural system, things like that. Um, interesting enough, um, if there was a section where they had to kind of rate important different diagnostic groups. And again, you this is where you probably see like the most, the highest ranking kind of diagnostic groups were like unilateral vestibular hypofunction, BPVD, central disorders. But there were areas that we had in the survey where students might've been exposed to, but they were not rated as essential very often, um, like migraines, um, maldebarkment, pediatric dizziness, anxiety. So that those were always interesting to see, like which ones they did that the majority of the schools didn't teach or think it was essential to entry level education. I don't know, Andy, you want to speak about there's a lot of other content. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think when I, particularly when we look at um, some of the, the current data of our current study that we just presented some of the results at the International Vestibular Rehabilitation Conference just um, back in October, um, it's really the five themes of the unilateral hypofunction um, as being the main one, particularly with you know, the uh, neuritis, labyrinthitis, uh, BPPV, both of the posterior, horizontal, uh, superior canals, Looking at that, yeah, post-concussive dizziness is a big one, along with the central vestibular disorders. So that was those are really the main um, ones that across all of them were rated the most most essential. Um, and so, with some of the data that we're you know, the initial data that we're getting for our clinician study, which is ongoing right now, is that matches pretty well in terms of what do the clinics or the practicing clinicians feel is essential for students to be able to come in and practice. And so that was uh, you know that's a area where they're fairly um, closely aligned. Yeah. That way. And then, um, go on, Ann. Uh, no, I was saying, you know, on top of diagnostic groups, there are definitely, um, there are definitely trends in like the, the, we went into specific examination procedures that the students should know um, or the new grads should know. And, you know, some of the central, the, the essential ocular motor functions, you know, the vestibular tests, like the head impulse tests, the positional test, the two main ones, the Dix Hall Pike and World Test, and some of the self-reported outcome measures like ABC, DHI, were rated as very important. But other scales um, were, that we had included weren't rated as important. Instrumented tests weren't rated as important. Um, even something like the motion sensitivity quotient wasn't as rated as important. You know, so it it does kind of. I think it may help inform us, like, you know, if we're making recommendations for, you know, um, PT education, these types of things really should be taught. And these things they should be exposed to um, at the, at, as a student. That's what we're kind of going for. And, and I think the, the survey did allow us to make some of those 
take some of the information from what's being taught, and then we'll be combining it with our study that we're taking right now that Andy um, is talking about to kind of like what's being taught and then what is expected from the clinicians and um, admitted cl clinical uh, uh, managers, what do they expect new grads to know? Yeah, I was I was going to move on to that question on like the consensus on um, that the group kind of developed um, what what to teach in the core curriculum for vestibular rehab. Um, so the five major um, conditions that you have mentioned, both peripheral and central um, testing, ocular testing that you have mentioned, um, being a clinical practitioner, we pay a lot of attention on, on DGI and now the FGA, the functional gait assessment, but yeah. I, I'm not sure if that was considered uh, essential or important yeah. in the... Those things were, um, it was, we did get some comment. We did have a whole slew of balance tests and things, um, but many of those tests are being taught, not just in for vestibular rehabilitation. They're being taught across the board for balance disorders in general or for screening balance. So we like those types of things came up as essential, but I think that it's necessarily just vestibular. Um, the, the interventions kind of fell along the same line with those diagnostic rooms. We are, we haven't come up with our actual recommendations yet. You asked the question because we really do want to take data from the two different sources and make a comparison um, from what the, what the, what the, cl the clinical environment wants versus what's being taught. Because, um, you know, I think as people that have been treating a lot of vestibular read about it and know a lot about vestibular disorders, we do see a broadening and expanding area. It has a broadening and expanding area of practice. When I say that, I mean, there are more clinical environments where vestibular patients are being treated and there are more populations where vestibular disorders are being recognized and vestibular therapies being applied. So you're talking pediatrics, you're talking geriatrics, you're talking sports medicine, you're talking about oncology, you're talking, you know, so it's really, it's expanding such that there's probably a basic level of knowledge that's really required. The question is, you know, what, what do they need at that level? And, and I, the, you know, it, it just, it's hard to actually, you know, put it down. We can only represent the data and say, this looks appropriate for right now, um, whether, and then hopefully there's pathways for people to gain more knowledge as they come out of PT school. Um, did you also have a question on how adept, I think you mentioned that, how adept the students would be at the point of graduation. Um, so, uh, when when the survey was being done, what did the what did the faculty um, had to say about that? Yeah, I, that is it was very interesting. So um, where is that little thing? Oh, mm -hmm. so we uh, we asked it on a on a level of proficiency kind of so, um, and we used the term like beginning. Inter, you know, intermediate, um, advanced beginner, that kind of thing. And so they just rated overall when the students graduate, what their overall competence in vestibular rehab be. And we found that uh, most of the respondents 
um, were either intermediate or advanced beginner based on our terms. And their terms was more like they could treat simple vestibular cases kind of independently, but might need mentoring for difficult situations. So that, inter that intermediate level is kind of that person that has, would still need some help, you know, um, when they have unfamiliar or complex cases. Um, that was about together, that was like 40% of them said intermediate and about 30% said advanced beginner. Um, so, but there were some people that rated higher and lower. Um, but we did have some interesting comments about that. Um, and the comments after that section were, well, it really just depends on what they got exposure in clinical education. <laughs> you know, that if my student went on a clinical education experience where they had vestibular there, I would expect them to be way higher. <laughs> so the one, that's like one variable that kind of came up at least um, seven or eight people made a comment about the expectation is based partly on the experience that they get in clinical education. I, I agree to that. Um, when I was a clinical instructor um, and I, I taught a couple of students, they would come observe me for hardly one or two days. And this was a part of their other clinical rotations, but we had different disciplines in our clinic, including pelvic health and, and vestibular rehab. So they would find it very fascinating. I think the goggles was something which was like the most fascinating thing that they had they saw. And if a patient improved within their time frame of um, observing me or you know, they're there in the clinic for like two weeks, three weeks, and they see that, wow, the patient got better and they're not spinning anymore. That also encouraged them to kind of um, know more and read more on it. And um, I personally am trained internationally. I'm trained in India. I had not even heard of a rehab. So for me, the exposure began when I started um, my practice. So I was a clinician already. So I agree with you based on the exposure is where someone is going to um, kind of be graded on being intermediate beginners. So, um, and, and I think that if you are going to see a clinician who is very well versed with vestibular rehab, they will expect more out of you uh, compared to someone who don't have that much knowledge and they would be okay with. Um, I think the perception that, that educators had that this is essential, but then no lab activity was being um, done. So um, kind of makes sense that there's this gap between the clinical instruction and faculty. Yeah. Um, my other question was, now, you know, this is, this is true for most of our practices, that the clinical instructors want the students to know more what they're seeing in, in the clinics, um, whereas the educators think that this is what should be done in, um, you know, in, at an entry-level uh, DPT program. And the boards, the NPT boards seem to be lagging behind everything because the re research and evidence has not kicked into the board level. So, um, have you started noticing a change in questioning on the NPTE um, with um, the recommendations that have been pouring in from all these surveys? Well, I don't think there's been much change. There are vestibular questions. At least I don't. It's hard to predict what's going to show up on. Right, so right. Just, you know, um, what the FSB 
FPT. I'm yes, right. FSBPT. Yeah, right. They do. They 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 base their content a lot of times on. Um, they do a practice analysis every year, and the practice analysis is a survey, and they survey on working um, activities and then function and skills and knowledge or something like that. And um, vestibular is on their practice analysis. Um, it it's not. And it's included in neuro and it has shown some areas to kind of slightly increase. So they do a scale of not important at all to very, very, very important or something like that. And like a three is right in the middle and a five is like, nobody gets a five on anything. But, um, and so, and if something gets to a 2.5, that's when they start to question whether it really should even be below, should be on the board's exam. So they kind of use it as a way to decide what to put on. But there hasn't been a lot of change in how people rate importance of the content that they have about vestibular. So they have something about screening for vestibular disorders. They have something about I don't, it, it's kind of included a lot in the neuro stuff. So it's not as specific as what we asked, but it did, it does get something to compare against. Um, yeah. I don't know if that's the way they, they formulate tests, you know, like by yeah. oh, there's more people practicing vestibular or we're going to put more questions on it. I think they do it based on, you know, how they've done the test and then um, but they do like they've done things like ask they they periodically will change the questions that they ask like the last one they did in 2021 that I read they actually started asking questions about telehealth and that you know why that happened because all of a sudden PTs were doing telehealth telehealth correct so it may, I have, there probably has to be a big I mean my opinion is there probably has to be something really big that's stellar that happens that would have them to say you know we need to ask more specific questions um, I know this one well, this particular study I just happened to be looking at it before this thing and and they said you know they're actually looking at all the modalities there's a lot of modalities that are asked questions about but people don't think they're very important that's yeah <laughs> that's true so, anyway, um so i i think you got to have a lot of change before they're going to make the content different. Uh, yes okay <laughs> dr litman um my question is to you what direction do you suggest our educators to take um to increase vestibular rehab awareness in our dpt students well, so, some of that is actually going to be determined by the results of our coming study. And so that's, um, and so while the first one was aimed at educators, the second one is aimed at practicing clinicians um, or uh, managers who have hiring uh, responsibilities, looking at what do they actually need their graduates to be able to do based on their specific practice areas. And so with this, uh, Based on some of the you know, limitations of the first study, we knew we needed to look more at the demographics. Um, who's answering these questions? What do they need? And so specifically, when, what is the type of facility? So is it you know, inpatient, you know, um, in a, you know, inpatient hospital-based? Is it an outpatient orthopedic clinic or a specialized neurological clinic? And so that students maybe, if they're looking at specific practice areas, they'll have a, hopefully based on these data, they'll have a better idea of what will they need to know um, going into, say, if somebody wants to practice in outpatient orthopedics, uh, that there are still these expectations, whether the students are aware of it or not. Um, particularly when, uh, just as an example, with post-concussive dizziness being so high, that can be seen quite often in a, in a uh, you know, orthopedic or sports-based clinic that way, or people that are, uh, you know, in the athletic training side as well, that may be in, you know, in parallel with their physical therapy practice. Um, 
Uh, so that's part of us just looking at the thing. We also wanted to look at those, are, do people have different expectations based on now their level of experience? And so are people who have a background in neuro or in vestibular rehabilitation, do they have higher or lower expectations? You could imagine you know, either direction. They, if they know more about it, they might expect more of their students, or if they have more um, experience, they know that they, they may not have as high of an expectation because they know they can mentor the student. Versus say some, I've, uh, I teach a, uh, a vestibular rehab elective um, to our third year students. And um, we find that uh, a lot of times the uh, clinical instructors may expect more of them simply because you know, the students, they know that the students have those, that knowledge. Um, you know, or if you have a, a clinical instructor that doesn't have the background in there or in that clinic, they may want their students to know more coming in. Um, and so that's what we hope to, to parcel out um, with the second study, really so we can start to align is what are the expectations of the clinicians? This is you know, for them saying, this is what we need our students to be able to do. Uh, and if that matches up well with what the educators are saying, this is what we think is essential. If there, you know, if there is any mismatch there, I think that's gonna be a, an important um, you know, point to, pull out of those studies in terms of going forward, making recommendations. Um, you know, if, if just as an example, one of the things that the, you know, we found in the educator study is that uh, things were rated probably more highly in terms of being essential for practice than was actually reflected in um, how many hours were taught as Anne said, and in maybe sometimes even how it was assessed. Yeah. We find the things that they are assessing them both at a cognitive level and at a psychomotor level, uh, just physically performing the tests. Um, if that was very, very high, that's really what they deem to be important. Um, and for the most part, that matched up. But there are a few things when we start to get down into some of the less common, uh, particularly diagnoses or less common, um, commonly known tests uh, that just wasn't taught as much. And Penny, we do expect to see variability. I mean, we actually yeah. we better know because we've looked at some of the data on our new, in the in the in the clinician survey. We do expect that you know people have different opinions about it based on you know their experience. So I think it's going to be and I think it's going to be an interesting process when we start to look at the and do a comparison between the two sets of data, the clinician study and the and to really kind of nail it down how much is their agreement? And then when we start to see, you know, variability, you know, or non-agreement, you know, where, where do we go with that? You know, like, you know, but we'll, we'll see. I, I'm excited to see the results and I'm kind of excited to see what we will come up with because it, it, it Me was too. the analysis for the, the overall recommendations, you know. My, me too. I, I, I found this very useful for myself because I'm very new into academia. And sometimes as, uh, and I've been doing vestibular rehab for more than 10 years now. And um, I will not forget one of the comment that one of the students made. He's, uh, his comment was, please teach us what we really need to know. Uh, we don't want to know too much. So it's so easy as, a, as an educator to, um, especially if you have more knowledge to kind of um, teach a lot, especially topics that may not be as, as much known, like um, discussing anxiety, like you mentioned, or a triple PD. Um, but like Dr. Littman also mentioned, um, that 
that's the point of time when the educator, when I thought, uh, okay, they can go out into the clinic and be mentored further so I can take a step back and I can teach them this much. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to your next study and I'm hoping that it comes out as soon as possible, but I understand the whole process. It takes time. Um, I wish you a lot of luck, both of you and your entire task force team that um, we are all waiting to see what you all have for us. Yeah. So thank you very much for giving me your time. Uh, it was a wonderful discussion. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Our pleasure. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening to this interview, which has been brought to you by the Vestibular Special Interest Group of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. For more information on the vestibular SIG and the ANPT, please visit www.neuropt.org. Thank you.